Thanks, Paul. Thanks, worship team. Kristen, thank you for reading scripture. Psalm 4. Uh, how many have studied Psalm 4 before? Few. All right. Good. Bow with me. Father, it's uh, so easy to fall into the ruts of life, to get caught in them and get bogged down. This is where we find David this morning. I pray we would hear his words and we would learn from them and that you would glorify yourself in our lives, Father. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Some days it just doesn't pray to get up in the morning. You ever have days like that? You know what I'm talking about? It just doesn't pray to get up in the morning. One problem seems to uh, complicate another problem. And uh, your solutions don't seem to fare much better either. Take, for instance, Edith of Darlington Town, Maryland. She's the mother of eight who had just walked in the back door of her house. She immediately noticed a uh, quietness, a stillness, that when you have eight kids, you know something's up. So she was walking through the house, and she looked out the front door, the screen door, and she saw five of her youngest kids out there, and they'd corralled something, and they were looking intently at it. So she crept over, and she looked in. There were five baby skunks. So uh, with all the voice she could muster, she said, quick, children, run, which they all did obediently after each one scooped up a skunk to take with them. <laughs> now, I don't know if Edith found this humorous or not. Uh, five skunky children are an unpleasant proposition to deal with. Uh, makes a statement for the whole day, doesn't it? Some days it just doesn't pay to get up. You've had days like that, I'm sure. Problems pile up, uh, zapping life of, of momentum, and just when you think you've got everything solved, you look back and discover everything is all amuck. With each encounter of problems, uh, they seem to be going stronger, and you, you're weakening. You're frustrated, you're annoyed. What do you do when problems keep coming your way, when your problem-solving resources uh, have proved inadequate? Where do you go when sleep, your last vestige of uh, peace, becomes a, a raging battleground through the night? Some days it just doesn't pay to get up, other days it doesn't pay to go to bed at night. David was at this juncture in his life. Problems were, were uh, zapping him of, of, his, uh, of his peace and of his joy, of his security. 
of all of his hopes for the future. And evidently, sleep had eluded David as his problems encumbered him into the night. Psalm 4 is the solution David arrives at. In it, he does three things. He, he rebukes the problem. He recognizes his need to get right with God, and he reaches for God in prayer. Three things. In rebuking the problem, David sees the problem for what it is. He, he defines it. Look at verses 2 and 3. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. We really don't know what that word means. We don't have a, a translation for it. It has been proposed that it's stop and think about that. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And the Lord will hear when I call to him. Of all the problems that come your way, people are the most difficult to deal with. Uh, things, uh, events, not so much. People generate problems. They, they come at you with, with an agenda. Things don't. Things are not motivated by uh, feelings and aspirations. People are. David finds the problem makers of his, his situation doing a couple things. These people sought to bring him down, to destroy his self-worth, to, to crush him. You see that in verse two, 2? You turn my glory to shame. They want to bring him down. They want to discredit him. They want to discourage him. They also have a different set of priorities based on an entirely different authority structure. Again, verse 2. You love delusions and seek false gods. Those who were causing David's problems, they have, have confidences in other authority sources. They serve other gods. These are the people who brought problems into David's life. People who sought to destroy who he was, what he was doing, who set out purposefully to, to undermine everything that was important to David. John Powell tells of a time when one of his friends was... Uh, vacationing in the Bahamas. He was walking and he saw a large group of people out on the end of a pier. They were pretty restless and pretty agitated and he wanted to know what was going on so he went out there where he found all of the attention of these people focused on uh, one young man who was making preparations for a, a solo journey around the world in a homemade boat. Without exception, everyone on the pier was vocally pessimistic. All were actively telling this ambitious sailor all the things could, that could possibly go wrong and why he would fail. Why he shouldn't even start 
The sun will broil you. You won't have enough food. That boat of yours won't withstand the waves in the storms. You'll never make it. He described it as a, a continuous flood of negativism, of anxiety-producing negativism. You haven't got it together. That boat of yours is junk. Your plans are simple-minded. You're stupid for even trying. People whose only goal it was to belittle and along the way humiliate. This is where David found himself. How does David handle this uh, onslaught that came his way? He rebukes it. That's the point of verse 3. Know that the Lord has set the godly apart for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. David knows the character of God and where he is with God. It's easy to get distracted when problems come your way, isn't it? When they begin to pile up, it's easy to get distracted. It's so easy to lose sight of who the Lord is and what he's doing and, and the fact that he's there. The fact that he's right there. He, he's present. He's available. And guess what? He's also involved. Already involved. He hasn't moved one little bit. But this is exactly when we need the Lord most. When problems overwhelm us, that's what we need to remember. Our Lord God, most of all. Where we are with him, how he has set us apart unto himself. How we are one of his children. By the way, if you are not a believer, if you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to, to make it so this morning. You need to recognize that you're a sinner. You need to recognize that that's what the cross is all about, your sin. And you need to know that the only thing you can bring to salvation is your sin, which caused the cross to start out with. Don't leave this morning before you talk to Paul or Mike or myself or somebody. Remember that you are one of his children. When I first read Psalms, I, didn't, I couldn't make head nor tails of Psalms. I wasn't a believer. I didn't know that it's dialogue between a, a child and his God, a child of God and his God. Only later did I discover that, after I become a believer. We are children of God brought into his family by the abundance of his grace. So remember, when problems seek to possess you, you are God's possession. That's what David does. He, he rebukes the problem and what it's doing to him. The problem's trying to, to draw him away, but he rebukes it. He's God's child, signed, sealed, and delivered. Not only has God set us apart, but God is also near. The, the, the latter phrase in verse 3, the Lord when he, will hear when I call to him. God is near. He's listening. We can be nowhere that God is not. 
an atheist lawyer had a, had a plaque on his wall. It was about this big. And it had three words, God is nowhere. One day his little daughter was there waiting for him to get off work and go home. And she was copying that sign, that plaque, on a piece of paper. And she copied it and copied it and copied it. But for some reason, she changed the whole meaning of that sign. She put a space between the W and the H so that what she wrote, God is now here. God is always here. He's always near, regardless of where we think he is. And that realization changes everything. We can be nowhere and know that God is now here, ever present, ever involved. He hasn't moved. Wherever, he, wherever we are, he is. That's the first thing David does in his solution to the onset of his problems. He rebukes the problem as it seeks to, to pull him away and uh, flush him down the drain. Next, David recognizes his need to be right with God. He, to recognize his need for cleansing. Uh, verse 4, in your anger do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your heart and be silent, Selah. Stop and think about that. Problems uh, not only cause us to slip away from God, but they cause us to slip into sin. In David's case, it was the pit of anger. He was angry about what was happening to him. He was angry what people were doing to him. Now, a word of caution, not all anger is wrong. There's sometimes when we should be angry with things. One of America's premier preacher, Henry Ward Beecher, analyzed the situation correctly. He said, a man that does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. A man that does not know how to be shaken to his heart's core with indignation over evil things is either a fungus or a wicked man. Someone else has written, anyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree, at the right time, and in the right way, that is not easy. The line is fine between godly anger and, 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 and sin. But that line is present nonetheless. The dividing line involves who is in control. When uh, you control anger, it becomes, uh, bears the mark of godly anger. When, when anger controls you, it's not good. You fall into the pit of sin. There's a huge difference, a, a sinful difference. Alexander Great was one of the few men who deserves his title, the Great. He was versatile, he was energetic, he was intelligent, he, he was driven. And he died young. He did. He was driven. But anger was one of the things that crept up and 
got a hold of him on several occasions. One, one particular occasion was when a, when a dear friend of Alexander's, a, a boyhood friend, a, a general in his army, became intoxicated and, and began to ridicule Alexander in front of his men. The anger built and it built and it built and eventually Alexander jumped up and he grabbed a spear from one of his soldiers and he, he threw that spear at his boyhood friend. Now he only wanted to scare his friend. But he was a soldier and his training proved true and that, that spear pierced his friend and killed him. Alexander ran over in, in just tragic. He pulled the spear out of his friend and he tried to kill himself with it, but his soldiers wrestled it away. Deep remorse followed this fit of anger. Guilt overcame him. He attempted to take his own life with that same spear, but he couldn't do it. For days he lay on a bed chiding himself for murdering his friend, mourning the death of this long, long friend. Alexander was a great conqueror. Cities, countries, empires, they were, they were all vanquished by him, but he failed miserably when it came to his own anger. St. John Climacus said, as long as anger lives, she continues to be the fruitful mother of many unhappy children. Whose child are you? Are you God's child or is anger your child, your mother, your parent? I know any number of people like this, perhaps you do as well, people whose anger whose bitterness literally sets the tone of their character. Anger, at least for a spell, set David's character. In sin, David was defined by his anger. There's a direct link between sin and unhappiness. Between sin and, and the turmoil that problems cause. Between sin and a lack of peace and, and, and joy in a person's life. And this is where David found himself. Many of us like to deal with sin like the, the, the man who was sentenced to death by his king. He attempted to obtain a reprieve by, by assuring the king he would teach his majesty's horse to fly within a year on, on the provision that at the end of the year, if he did not, the king could put him to death. Within a year, the man exclaimed, the, the king may die. I may die, or the horse may die. Furthermore, within a year, maybe the horse will learn to fly. That's what many of us do with sin. We, we contrive excuses to avoid the reality of the situation. We ignore or, or reject the sin that we are involved in. But the matter of the fact is where sin controls, there's only problems. 
there's only consequences. The solution calls for a, a severe self-inventory. It says, search your heart. That's what the text says there at the, the end of verse 4. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Selah. Stop and think of that through. Have I sinned and where? Search your hearts. Seek where you are and why. And if sin is, is found, place it under the blood of Jesus Christ and trust God. The Apostle John tells us that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we but ask. The solution to distress is to rebuke the problem and, and recognize your, re your need to get right with God. But I said there are three parts to this solution, didn't I? The, the, the third is to reach out to God in prayer. While I'm giving it last, it's really the, the opening call of the psalm. It's, it's of first importance. Verse 1, answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. David cries out. It's a, it, it, it's a prayer for help. It's something beyond religion. It's something beyond ritual. It's a prayer found in relationship. A call for help. A, a statement of faith. Someone has written... A prayer to be said when the world has gotten you down and you feel rotten and you're too doggone tired to pray and you're in a big hurry and besides, you're mad at everybody. Help. It's a good prayer, isn't it? I don't know how many times I've prayed it. Help me, Lord. I'm at the end of myself. I've prayed it often. That said, I wonder what would have happened if I had prayed it more. A lot of times when we should pray, we don't pray. The other thing we don't do is look and realize that God has heard. He's there Right there in that moment, he hasn't moved, he hasn't left. He's right there where he needs to be doing exactly what he needs to be doing. In 1346, during the Hundred Years' War, the uh, English army of King Edward uh, III met the French at Crazy France. Prince Edward... King Edward's son led one of the vital divisions of, uh, of the British. While the king stood on a, a on high overlook, a, a high ground with a, a strong contingent of men. Reinforcements to be brought into the battle when necessary. Soon after the battle started, the, the prince thought he was in danger, so he sent for help. But the king did not come. Young Edward uh, sent another message pleading for uh, immediate ass assistance. His father responded by telling the courier 
Go tell my son that I'm not so inexperienced a commander as not to know when help is needed, nor so careless a father as to not send it. Did that hit home? It does for me. I don't know if it does for you or not, but it, it does for me. God, our Father, he knows, he loves us, he responds as he should in love, always in love. That's his response to us. As we, we get uptight, as, as stress begins to, to chew on our innards, remember that phrase, I am not so inexperienced as a commander as to not know when help is needed, nor so careless a father as to not send it. God doesn't always give us what we ask for, but when we need help, he gives us help. And his answers are always given through love. We may not always like how he answers, but his answers are always given through love. Al Wiedemann was a husband and the father of four who worked for an international corporation for 15 years as a purchasing agent. The salary was quite large, but so were the expectations. As such, the weight of the job began to drag him down. More and more demands were placed on him with less and less fulfillment. It became evident that he was just a number to the corporation and not a person at all. Al saw less and less of his family as the job became more and more demanding. He, he knew more about the drive to work than what was going on in his family at home. Al and his wife Susan began to pray. Lord, something has to happen. Do something, anything. Change our lives. This is no way to live. Lord, take over. And the Lord did. He answered their prayers. Al got laid off. No more job, no more six-figure income. Al now polishes Porsche wheels. And guess what? He loves it. He's happy. His wife is delighted, and his four kids have been transformed by their father being at home. David writes in verses 7 just exactly what Al Wiedemann experiences every day. Verses 7 and 8. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. See, see they're, they're prospering than when new grain when grain and new wine abounds. I lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Rebuke the problem. Recognize your need to uh, be right with God and, and reach out to God in prayer. When the problems of the world try to tear you apart, peace is found in the presence and provision of the Lord. It's it's a simple statement. 
When the problems of the world tear you apart, peace is found in the presence and provision of the Lord. I don't know who this gal is. Her name is De- uh, Jessica Dale Shook. Uh, right in the middle of the pandemic last year, she, she uh, wrote this. She, she said, I had an interesting conversation with my 15-year-old yesterday. She said, you know, Mom, God has allowed us to be at a point in this country where so many of our gods, uh, lowercase g, so many of our gods are being taken away. Uh, Sports, arts, and entertainment, education, money, travel, church, traditions. I'm thinking maybe he wants us to get our eyes on him and be like the early church in small groups, learning and growing in him. We're blaming big government for the chaos and confusion. Have we ever stopped to think that God, in his wonderful loving kindness, is giving us this opportunity to experience him afresh and new? He's sovereign. He is good. And that mother responded, I for one was very convicted by her words. They are convicting, aren't they? Out of the mouths of babes. So that we might get our eyes off the gods of this world and on him. Isn't that what David is talking about here? And yes, it is convicting. When the world rips into you with its problems, peace is found by the bucket loads in the presence and provision of the Lord. Bow with me. Father, we come to you realizing our need of you. Our need for you to be at the center of our lives. Life comes at it with all its problems, Father. It tries to bring us down and and, and pull us away from you. Father, our world promises so much. It entices us with so much. But it's only in you that we find fulfillment, Father. It's only in you that we find fulfillment the blessings that you give us in your peace that we find in confidence in our relationship with you, Father. Father, what we heard from the psalmist this morning may have come from his lips, but uh, I'm betting it's common to all of us. And his solution is equally true for us. I pray that you will bless us with his words and his solution. Rebuke the problem. Recognize it for what it is. Remember our need to get right with you and reach for you in prayer. Yes, Father, it's all about you. It's always all about you. We are in your hands. You are God, and we need to let you be God. Father, I I pray this for each of us in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
And now I dismiss you with this benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.